So hello, my name is Yuval Ben-David of Yale's International Leadership Center, and this is the Yale Leads podcast. Today, our special guest is Yulia Mendel, former press secretary to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky. Between 2019 and 2021, she worked side by side with Zelensky, crafting the messaging of the new administration and handling crisis communications. She's also the author of an excellent book, which I highly recommend, The Fight of Our Lives, My Time with Zelensky, Ukraine's Battle for Democracy, and What It Means for the World. Yulia, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Yuval. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, maybe tell us about where you come from, your childhood. Well, thank you. I think that I'm just a regular, ordinary Ukrainian, and uh, the story of my family actually represents the story of millions of Ukrainian families. I try to look in the past to appreciate everything that my great-grandparents and grandparents and parents did to actually you know, help me live in this world and navigate. Um, my great-grandfather was the enemy of the people of the USSR because he stood against totalitarian regime of the, uh, of the USSR. My uh, grandparents survived the artificial famine that was organized by Joseph Stalin. Uh, my mother, as a great-granddaughter of the enemy of the people, was not allowed to get her medical degree, but she was fighting for this right. And... Uh, she got her medical degree today to be in the hottest zone of shelling in Kherson and to help wounded people and to treat those who need help. I come from Kherson. It's in the south of Ukraine. Um, it was occupied in the first week of the large-scale Russian invasion. And uh, it was the only administrative city that was under occupation. My parents, my aunt and uncle, they stayed under Russian occupation for eight long months. Um, it was terrifying. Um, but we are very happy that, you know, we are lucky to have this part of Kherson region liberated. Now there are two thirds of Kherson region under Russian occupation. And we get some information sometimes from there. It's absolutely terrifying because there is kidnapping of people, torture. There is no any kind of freedom of speech or freedom of expression. Uh, people live in total fear and there is disgrace of human rights. In in Kherson, which is liberated and controlled by uh, Ukraine now, it's better in terms of freedom. You know, you can enjoy freedoms that the democracy can offer. But on the other side, it's... It's not the full democracy for the reason that this region is hugely shelled every day. And that's why you need to have law enforcement and military there to maintain the situation. But you know what? Um, I guess my country has learned so much in the last 30, almost 33 years of independence. We have learned so much from the West. We have tried meritocracy. We have tried capitalistic system. We have tried to be open-minded and we achieved so many uh, results that I feel like if we manage to get rid of Putin, if we manage to go through this war, we have all the chances to be an equal and prosperous partner of the free world. And we belong to the free world. That's what I appreciate hugely. So you you did a, a PhD in Ukrainian literature. 
if I'm not mistaken. I think uh, contemporary Ukrainian poetry, maybe. And I'm wondering why you didn't become an academic. I mean, that's a lot of commitment. <laughs> that's a good to, question. To do a PhD. That's a good question. Uh, you're right. Uh, I had a PhD. I was uh, researching Volodymyr um, Zatulevitor. It's uh, a Ukrainian writer who was very active in uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And unfortunately, he died at the beginning of 2000s. Enormously, enormously talented author who was representatives of different tendencies in Ukrainian literature. And actually, those hopes for freedom and fight for freedom when there was the collapse of the USSR in the beginning of, you know, new Ukraine, new independent Ukraine. But I had my reasons not to go into academics. First of all, uh, I feel like it's a very responsible job. I'm not sure if I can take this kind of responsibility. I mean, you know, this is big. This is about the whole new generations, right? And I'm not sure that at that moment when I was defending my PhD, there was this kind of freedom in the university of trying, you know, to be more modern, you know, and to try new practices. But also I actually stood against the big deal there. I uh, There was a lot of corruption, deliberate corruption. And in 2016, I had a big article. Perhaps it's one of the best articles that I'm very proud to have written. It was about how corruption worked in Ukrainian um, universities. And I was encouraged by an American professor actually to write about it because he said, you're a journalist, you have the story. Why don't you tell the Western world how it works? Because everybody knows about corruption, but no one knows actually what it is on the ground. And I find that, you know, that type of corruption was so destructive on a national scale, because it was about stopping actually the progress. It was humiliating for new generations of young people who were stepping in in this world, you know. And uh, um, yeah, it was very stressful for me. Um, it was published in Political Europe. It was called How Ukraine Trades Bribes for Diplomas. I think that was the answer. And uh, I told how I was demanded to pay bribes and how this terrifying system worked when students needed, they didn't have a chance not to pay. They were forced to pay for tickets of all the professors who were coming for their hotels, their per diems to make them like luxury dinners and lunches. Uh, and that was how it was working. It was very humiliating. Uh, and it wasn't about the science. The most important thing, it wasn't about literature, the science or anything. You just had to do this so that the professors allow you to pass the defense. Uh, as for me, as a person who was writing actually this PhD, it was a very painful experience. Uh, so I was sued for this article and the lawsuit uh, uh, was in place for four and a half years. So it took me four and a half years actually to fight the lawsuit. Uh, I won the appeal and that was a big deal for many people because first of all, I got a lot of thank you because people, you know, they were living in the system that has not been revealed. There was no freedom to talk about that. When somebody can write about that, this is a lot. This is actually how media can change the world. You talk about this, you reveal the problem, somebody tries to change it. 
And I believe that we have done a lot of reform in education since then. I'm very proud that we're working as a country on this. But I believe, you know, that um, the challenges need to be talked about. And uh, I feel like Ukraine already knows what it is, you know, that that media is important. Freedom of speech is important. Human rights is important. Education should be as modernized and as possible, as aligned with Western uh, standards as possible. We have a lot of a lot of people who try to push for these much better standards than of post-Soviet Ukraine. Yeah, and I think one thing that really struck me in your book was the fact that I think you were the first person in your family to grow up speaking Ukrainian. And you were entering primary school at the fall of the Soviet Union, and your parents were deciding whether to send you to, to Russian-speaking school or Ukrainian-speaking school. And I think they opted for Ukrainian-speaking school, ultimately. But that's really, I mean, it's and then you went on to do, to do a PhD in, in Ukrainian literature. So, and of course, the whole language issue has become so politicized. You're a very attentive reader. <laughs> yeah, so it's, I mean, it's a really so, beautiful, it's a beautiful arc. Yeah, it's, um, let me say that the, the, the language question in Ukraine is a very, very sensitive. It's a very traumatic question. I think every nation has some traumatic issues that in many ways are used today by bad actors to try to divide those nations. And this is the language question in Ukraine. Russia was using it for dozens of years, trying to say that some people who speak like Russian are better or worse, and you know, trying actually just to, to divide the nation based on this uh, uh, issue. Uh, so in my family, uh, my grandparents, they were speaking Surzhek. Surzhek is a combination of Ukrainian and Russian language. And it was spoken around the whole region in every village. Uh, so there were like Russian words, but at the same time, Ukrainian grammar, Ukrainian phonetics. And that's how I learned, you know, first my language. And then I had um, a, a, an aunt who is a Ukrainian teacher. She is a teacher of Ukrainian language and literature. And she actually taught me the first Ukrainian poetry. You know, I was really very proud of that. So when I came to Kherson, which was a fully Russian-speaking city, um, I actually did not understand kids because they were speaking Russian. And I was like speaking Surzhik, more Ukrainian version. And I'm like, what's going on? And when you're a small child, you actually cannot understand what's happening. You just don't understand what you're sad and you don't know how to explain to people yourself so that they understand it. Uh, these were like quite difficult times in the kindergarten. But then my parents sent me to school. And yes, there were only two schools in 1991 in Kherson that were Ukrainian speaking schools. And they decided that, you know, I needed to go to Ukrainian speaking school. And yeah, I started, uh, I was there the only child in the whole school who was speaking Ukrainian during the breaks too, not only during the lessons. Uh, quite an experience, I must tell. When I was like 12, 13, I started learning Russian so that I could freely speak Russian too. So I know both languages, but um, yeah, I just want to say that for many Ukrainians, it's really a very painful thing when people, you know, try to polarize the society. At the same time, 
I, uh, there were so many competitions of Ukrainian language and I participated in almost all of them. And I always was getting to national level. I was getting like second, third place. It's never the first, but I was there. Uh, and so that's, that's why, you know, it's not a surprise that when I came to Kiev, I entered the Ukrainian linguistics. And for me, it is a big part of my identity. It is the fact how my character was forged being a Ukrainian speaker in Russian-speaking region, like city, let's say so. It is how I learned myself, my nation. It is how I saw how we can be manipulated. It is how I was working on myself to go through this trauma and to be stronger and to give the responses. And I believe that I believe that this is a very politicized question in many ways, because when I see that Ukrainian volunteers, soldiers uh, fight in trenches, there are so many Ukrainian speakers and so many Russian speakers, and they do not fight for language there. They fight for the values. Um, so, you know, still, uh, many Ukrainians would appreciate if you learn not Russian words, but Ukrainian. <laughs> you know, привет, not привет. <laughs> Uh, it's it's hello hi right and um, if you come to Ukraine please do yeah few words thank you привет hi and every Ukrainian would appreciate you very very much all right I gotta study up so maybe I need to add the history it's a very difficult complicated history but just for you to know for dozens of times the Ukrainian language have been has been banned in the USSR like uh, it was treated as if it's a secondary language if a person who talks this language is not educated or she's not educated and it's like secondary type of person there was a lot of chauvinism based on the fact that you know a person was speaking Ukrainian I think it worked everywhere in the Soviet Union. I think it worked like with other nations like Belarusian or you know, Tajik or Kazakh, etc. etc. But you know, for us, it's like really such a big part of our identity, and so many people were fighting for the right to speak Ukrainian and to be treated equally. Uh, that's why it stayed in our history. It's really, you know, a, a big deal, really something very painful experience. But today I feel like we cannot. We cannot let go over 70 years of Soviet Union where our parents grew up, you know, our grandparents were living. And at some parts, you know, Russian language still dominates. And I don't feel like I have any kind personally of attitude because of the language. But there are a lot of Russian speaking Ukrainians who started learning Ukrainian to speak it better in better way after the large scale invasion. So if Putin tried actually uh, to boost so-called Russian world or Russian culture, instead he achieved completely different result. When people want to learn more about Ukrainian history and more and more people start uh, studying Ukrainian language and speaking Ukrainian language, many bloggers and stars, they went out and they said, no, we are not speaking Russian anymore because this is the language of a terrorist. Still, many professionals who fight disinformation, they fight disinformation in Russian language because this is the way how you tell the truth to the people who speak only Russian language. I mean, those people who are, for instance, in Russia, right? And here is also a secret. Ukrainian people, they do understand and know 
both languages, Ukrainian and Russian. Like if you speak in Russian to a Ukrainian, even if he is the only Ukrainian speaker, he will understand you. And perhaps he will be able to respond. But in Russia, they don't understand Ukrainian at all. <laughs> this, is, this is a very interesting secret code for many Ukrainians. That's yeah, very interesting. So I want to flash forward to 2019. There's a, there's an election, there's an open competition for the, the job of press secretary, and you put your you put your name in the ring, and you're not expecting to get a call back. I mean, this is you're expecting nepotism, you know, someone's maybe someone more connected to to get the job, but you do get the call back and an interview, and ultimately you get the job. So take us back to to that moment. You know, I'm wondering about this election, what it means for for you, for the country, for the direction of Ukrainian society, and and what this whole process of you know getting this job, what that reflects for you about this moment. So let me first say what was 2019 in Ukraine. It was a very different type of electoral campaign. This was for the first time when a newcomer enters the Ukrainian politics and he starts his campaign like in three, four months before elections. And this was very smart because there was too little time to kill his image by oligarchs and different established political systems in the country. Um, on the other hand, there, there was the fight between old school politicians and there were so much known in Ukrainian society as people who were, you know, quite outdated and focused on corruption instead of actually managing the country by new standards. And despite of the fact that there was so much talk about we are moving to Europe and despite of many reforms, people felt like the leadership of that kind was, you know, quite more of Soviet kind, let's say so. It, it was like people were really disgusted about corruption that was everywhere. There were so many scandals. So when a newcomer came to politics, and that was a newcomer who had been on the screens and on the stage for dozens and dozens of years, they actually wanted to believe that this is the person who can bring change. So President Zelensky entered the race as a very successful businessman. So he was a meritocrat. And Ukrainians, they really appreciate meritocracy, right? And, uh, you know, people believed if he can achieve success by himself, so he can bring success to our country, right? Also, for dozens of years, he had been fighting corruption and oligarchs. Oh, as, as you know, from image to image on the stage. So he always had been with the people on the people's side when he was performing different uh, different uh, uh, scenes, you know, in different scenarios on the stage or in the movies. So he was very popular and he was an answer to the old and corrupt system. And that's how actually he gained the hearts and minds of millions of Ukrainians. He gave hope. President Zelensky gave so much hope to Ukrainians as they had never had before or hadn't had for a long, long time. Uh, yeah, and he did this amazing thing of trying to uh, rise social elevators. I think this is a very democratic system, and that's something that has not been known before because politics was so closed. And here is a newcomer, and he says, we will open social elevators. So we will announce competitions. And he announced the competition for his press secretary in Facebook. 
and so many people wanted to work with him and that looked really in a, like wow that's something new and strange but attractive at the same time right and i didn't want to apply and it's obviously that i didn't want to apply because like no other president in ukraine had ever opened the competitions like everything has been based only on nepotism so why would i think that a new president would actually pick up someone you know transparently but it happened it was true it happened he was really looking for people he hired hr companies that conducted the first levels of competition i didn't want to apply but some of my colleagues were saying you know he needs such people as you just try this you know la 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 and i sent my cv on friday night absolutely not expecting any call back but the hr company called me on saturday and we had 40 minutes of conversation after which they sent my cv and my profile to the office of the president who thought about some other steps of competition. So we're doing some technical tasks, et cetera, et cetera. And then the time came and I was called and I was told that I was top five of selected people. And I come on Saturday, another Saturday uh, to the office of the president. And there is the president there in his jean suit. And there is the team like of around seven, eight people. And there are cameras there and I'm having an interview. And it was a very interesting type of interview that I had never experienced before. A lot of questions. The chief of staff guy didn't like me at all. Others liked me. You know, you need to navigate. It's about economics and politics and scandals, but it's also about PR. It's about a person whom I completely don't know. And this is about a person who also enters this politics for the first time. It was very interesting and new. But I guess, you know, there was a question that identified my success. <laughs> um, Zelensky asked me about my motivation for this job. And I improvised. I said, look, if you're a guy from a poor region of Ukraine who build yourself through in such successful way and then absolutely in democratic and transparent way became the president of Ukraine. And I am a person from another region and also from poor background who also was building my, my career in a more democratic way. And I can become in a transparent way your press secretary. What is this if not a Ukrainian dream? When we can actually say the next generations, here we are, we can build anything in Ukraine. We can become anything in Ukraine, right? And I think he understood that we shared the same values at the time. And, you know, in a few days, I got a call and said that I was... I was selected as his secretary, actually, one of the top positions in the country. And I worked for two years with him. And yeah, I was identified as top five, the most influential people in the country, Ukrainian, like women. But I didn't feel like that because I felt I had so much responsibility and I needed to do so much work <laughs> that it was no even time to think about, are you influential? Actually? <laughs> was the time of hard hard work and um you know i did my best well you had you had lots of energy because i think you were very young early 30s right when you got it was job. yeah it was i was 32 um and uh, yeah it was a very demanding job like it was very exciting but it, at the same time it was very exhausting like look at look at jane psaki she stayed at the position for 15 months right I stayed at the position for 25 months and our institutions were not as close as developed as the White House. So yeah, a lot of things I needed to do by myself with my hands. And um, 
at the first year I was sleeping like three, four hours per day. And it was like, you could visit like three countries per day. So it sounds great and it is great, but like, look, (laughs) it is like really very demanding and challenging job, right? I'm actually very proud that I've been there. But I will give you a secret, you know, many people and journalists, they were asking you perhaps don't regret that you're not there. And I'm like, "Mm, no, (laughs) I don't. I mean, I think I've done a lot of uh, job for my country, uh, despite of being or not being the part of his team. And I still think that it's not about the cult of personality, but it's about Ukrainians. This is the nation of 40 million people. And majority of us are supporting democratic way of ruling. And there is this not even window, it's the gate that was open to the free world. And this gate means there is huge exchange of experience and information and knowledge and human capital, you know. And this is when we are merging. Right now is the period when we're merging, you know, we're like saying, here we are, we are the part of European family, we're merging, you know, with, with this free world. Um, so this is about the people. And I do believe in Ukrainian people. I do believe. Yeah, and I mean, it seems to me that that's a very, maybe that's a, also a very young spirit and a very, the attitude of of youth. And, and that's something that struck me about this administration and you're emblematic of this, the, the role of young people, of millennials in the administration. And I'm wondering how you, how you see that, the, the role of, of young people in this administration, what, what was the role, the, the part you played yeah, so I write about this in my book, The Fight of Our Lives. Uh, you know, I focus on it because I think that Zelensky at that moment felt very well those tendencies of the power that millennials were bringing into different spheres of life. And at the beginning, uh, he really believed that he needed more and more new people, like of new the mid of his presidency, he said, well, I do need both millennials who are newcomers who more have this business approach and i need older generations who have a lot of experience so he tried to combine both categories but he definitely made a lot of uh focus on millennials because he felt like these are the people who actually can challenge the whole industries today let me say like I feel like new generations who are like already no, no not millennials but like X that you know etc. They think even faster. They're very dynamic. They are so open-minded. They don't see any borders, and this is such a power too. At the same time, millennials are those who have been in different world before the internet, you know, and then they actually were the first to step in uh, in online era and to start creating the first products and start creating the first connections globally and actually gaining, you know, this this new kind of the world. Like, let me say, there were usually only televisions and it was so hard to get on TV, right? And if you got a position of a TV journalist, you were like a star, you used to be a star. Now you can go on YouTube and gain more views than any TV would give you, right? Like, Like, yeah, and this is good and bad at the same time. So... This is one when, when one person can challenge the whole industry. And this works not only in media sphere, but in many other spheres. And Zelensky believed in that. And I think he still is. And there are still people in his government who are of millennial generation. 
but I guess, you know, the next uh, governments of Ukraine will need to take more new people who are really like of newer generations, because I believe that despite of all the challenges, the new generations have so much positive in their conditions of growing and in the way how they perceive the world and how they can contribute to the better future that, you know, they, they, they should be first advising and then stepping in the roles. As press secretary, I imagine that one of the biggest challenges you, you faced was disinformation. It's a, sort of famously a hallmark of, of Russian gray zone tactics. Uh, there's this incident that, you know, that really stuck with me when I think there was a, a negotiation over a prisoner exchange, prisoner of, of uh, war exchange. And uh, these anonymous Russian telegram channels are announcing that the prisoners are on their way back to Ukraine. And that, of course, raises expectations on on the Ukrainian side. And it, it was false. And it, you know, it just basically dampened the, the, Ukrainian, the Ukrainian negotiating position. So as press secretary, I imagine there's a moment when you realize the magnitude of the problem when you first sort of confront it face to face. And I'm I'm wondering what that moment was like and, and how you're thinking about how to tackle disinformation has, has evolved over time. So, yeah, uh, I think that you know, it's not Ukrainian problem. It's the problem of the whole globe today. And if you underestimate this, you don't understand the consequences. Disinformation is as dangerous as death because it can lead to death. And... Russia and many autocracies, they weaponize the world, the word and uh, information today, and it creates like real effect on the ground. So um, I feel like it's, you know, disinformation, it's the kind of radiation, you don't feel it, but then at some point you just get cancer or die, you know, and this is what Russia has done in Ukraine. And that's what Russia is doing right now in the West. Um, yeah, it really rises the stakes. So Russia was feeding Ukraine with disinformation for dozens of years, but it definitely became much worse before 2014 when Russia for the first time annexed uh, part of Ukraine and started the war in Ukraine. The story that you tell, it was one of the first stories that I experienced on a huge scale in the administration of Zelensky. So there were months of negotiations to release Ukrainian hostages, uh, prisoners of war that, that Russia was holding. At some point, a Russian telegram channel shared a disinformation, very positive one, that the exchange has happened and that Ukrainian prisoners of war are coming back home. And it, it caused such enormous effect. Nobody could, could actually believe in that. It's unbelievable even to re recollect this. So there were, of course, friends and families who were waiting for those prisoners of war, and they started sharing information. They believed that it was kept in secret from them for their security reasons. They saw it. They saw hope in this message. They started calling to the office, but they also started spreading the word. But there were also people who didn't know it was Russian Telegram channel, just ordinary people or people who were close to the government and they shared it. 
And so it started being viral because people were wanted, they wanted to hear this good news. They wanted something good. They're like, okay, it happened. Thanks God. We were waiting for this so much and the people are here. Nobody saw those people. There was no video, photo. There was no information officially, but you know, somebody shared it and somebody reshared it. And when you see that there are thousands of reshares, people are like, okay, it cannot be not true. It cannot be false because... So many people share this information, right? And uh, at some point, there was uh, uh, the parliament voted for a general prosecutor. He was like 10 minutes in power only. And he shared, you know, this post too. And he did not, he just, he was the one who thought, okay, it's like viral already. So it cannot be false. But it was like midnight or even later. It was like really very late appointment. And, you know, he did not call obviously anyone in the office at that moment. He shared it. And media thought that if the general prosecutor shared it, it's true. So um, till the morning, till the morning, the situation was critical. Um, Ukrainian television journalists were in every airport of the country waiting for uh, their prisoner support to come. There were a lot of journalists hunting near the border, trying to figure out where they can cross, uh, maybe in demarcation line, trying to call everyone literally whom they knew in the government, in the office of the president. And we were saying, we don't know anything about the exchange. We don't know whether you took this information. We cannot confirm it. Uh, we still have negotiation. And they didn't believe us because they, it was so viral. They thought that we are still hiding the information. Seeing how this hope can rise stakes, Russia actually did not give us the prisoners of war. It just showed the government of Zelensky how it can manipulate the society. And when people have this hope and have this joy, on such a substantial matter and valuable matter as the lives of prisoners of war, then, you know, there is another stage. The next one is a huge disappointment. And the disappointment goes to politicians, but it also despair because this all was lies. It was almost true in the, in the minds and hearts of the relatives and, and people, you know, Ukrainians but it appeared to be just lies. It was a huge despair and, you know, it was very bad. And I know that after that, Russia tried to rise the stakes and the negotiations became much more complicated. Russia wanted more because Russia showed how it was working. They tried to do it once more. They tried to do it just the day before the real exchange happened. Um, how did they did this? So they, they created a Twitter account of President Zelensky that was completely false account. And they shared uh, the message from there that the prisoners of war returned, the exchange has happened. And they sent this tweet to Russian Interfax and Russian media shared this. And when you, many media saw, okay, so Russian media shares, it's media already, not social media. And so they also started picking it up. But thanks God, we managed to stop it. But it shows, you know, it's such a huge scale of manipulation with people's lives people's mental he uh, health with uh, people's expectations and it leads really to bad consequences but let me say that many of russian disinformation stories they actually led to the war right i mean russia justifies its war and aggression by 
you know, creating some disinformation narratives and Russia actually comes and kills by justifying, you know, with some mythology that has nothing uh, complete with reality. So I really feel like no media can cope alone with it. It's about responsibility of every person who uses internet. It's about the governments who need to create as many programs of uh, media and social media and internet literacy as possible. It's about us who sit there and share, you know, and who want, who share something that they want maybe to hear, but that is no close to truth. And I know, you know, there was uh, some polling made by one American university and they were investigating uh, those people, like not investigating, researching uh, the disinformation and why people in the United States were sharing it in 2016. And one of the reasons was people said, yeah, we, well, we probably know it's not true, but we don't uh, absolutely care because this is what we feel towards this candidate, right? And this is a very, very dangerous way. And if we underestimate it in the epoch of internet and social media, then I'm afraid we all can lose in the era of artificial intelligence. That is going to be much more effective and much more dangerous than just social media. Yeah, it's a, it's a scary thought. You know, so we're recording this on February 23rd. Tomorrow is the two-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion. I'm wondering, Yulia, how has your life, personally, how has it changed and, and been affected? Yeah, I think that now Ukrainian will be ever the same as before the war. Um, it's a different state of life, different state of self-perception. Uh, um I think that every Ukrainian turned into some kind of a volunteer on that larger or smaller scale um, and also into a believer. You know, we want to believe because we do have what to appreciate and value. My husband, as many other Ukrainian men, went to the front lines. It was a scary story. Um, he came to me and he said that he was going to Kherson, when Kherson was under occupation, it was very sweet. He said that it was going to return me my hometown for the wedding as a wedding gift. He proposed me. I'm not sure it was any kind of comfort, but now when he's back, I'm you know very happy that this story, you know, that that he put it like that, right? But I feel like I'm happy for myself, but it doesn't give you the full happiness. Because there are so many women in the country who are sitting and waiting for their sons and husbands and brothers, you know. And there are a lot of men whose wives and sisters also are on the front lines. And this is such a huge new part of our identity. It used to be there too, because the war is already, you know, has been happening for 10 years. But it's much larger scale. It's the scale that touches like literally everyone. And uh um, it feels very, very different. Uh, I'm not the Yulia who used to be on 22nd of February 2022 or 23rd February. Um, <laughs> I know what is PTSD. I know how difficult it is. I'm afraid that many Ukrainians will need to go through a lot of these challenges in terms of effect 
of the war on mental health care health um we will need to develop to design actually new approaches for the people who were at war and to give them more opportunities um there are millions of refugees and internally displaced people there are tens of thousands of dead there are hundreds of thousands of wounded people at least 50,000 of Ukrainians lost the leaves. At least. That's a huge number. There are so many deported people. There are still people who are being tortured in occupied territories and in Russia. There are hundreds of thousands of war crimes. And this toll is being rising. So every day, my parents live on a huge shelling. And it's like disastrous scale. It's very different from just statistics. We usually perceive and see now... Just statistics, you know, like Russia sent like 10 missiles, five people died. That's just numbers. So imagine if your family lives under this shelling every day. When you call parents and you hear the shelling, you hear either artillery or some explosions. Um, my parents turned into military doctors. They're not military, but they just like go through the region every day and help, you know, people who are wounded and you know what they said me they dream most of all that when the war is finished they will be still going to work every day and treating people but not from wounds but from just ordinary you know diseases and sicknesses which shows you know the devotion to the profession and devotion to the place and value of the community that exists and i think in many ways it refers to the same feeling as americans have you know, they are also devoted in many ways to the country, to their community, to their home, to their place. Um, and shows how people want to contribute under the risk of their lives. And I believe this is something that majority of Ukrainians had developed in, them, in ourselves. Um, it's a very different nation now. In many ways, it's a better nation now because the war showed us how much good we can create from being united and from working together. At the same time, we, I would ask everyone to be sensitive because being through this terrible and devastating war, it's very different just, just from ordinary people whom you see on the streets. I came to the United States. I couldn't go to bar, have a beer, you know. It's just like it doesn't feel good. Every time when I'm abroad and I step on the grass, every time I think... If there is no mind there, I'm telling myself, you are in a different country. There is no mind there. There is no explosion there. But I remember, you know, when I'm in Ukraine, I don't go to the woods because I know that some of them were mined. I remember that I was staying uh, with the military on the road and they said, don't step left or right. It's all mined because Russians are coming. So what I mean, it creates such a different picture of the world. And I feel like, we don't want to be victimized ever. We, you know, we gave such a fight to such a much more outmanned army of autocratic regime. We deserve some sensitivity and understanding. And so many men are sacrificing their lives. So it would be great, guys, if you appreciate it. You know, I think that financial aid that is now being stuck in the Congress in the United States is not that big deal for you Americans in terms of you know how much it costs for every American 24 cents per day for us standing there against Putin 
Yeah, but also, you know, I all I know that Ukrainians are not the people of the war. Uh, we are looking into peace, and the closed pollings show that people are looking into peace very and very much. So I want to end on that note, and it's worth telling our listeners that actually you're coming together with the center. We're all coming together to support this incredible initiative, um, the Ukrainian Recovery Youth Global Initiative that's being run by this incredible NGO, Brave Generation, of young Ukrainians who are training, cultivating the leadership of the post-war, the reconstruction generation. And we're, you know, we're really honored and and uh, and excited about this at the ILC. And so that message of the future and 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 hope, I mean, it, it is you know, a terrible time now. It sort of seems like Russia has the strategic initiative and there's a bit of a sense of stalemate and and so when you think you know five ten years down the line about ukraine and the future that young ukrainians can build what do you see how do we get there what's your message to those young ukrainians yeah uh thank you for this and i'm really so impressed for what the ngo brave generation does when I met the founders, Tanya and Reed, and when I saw what they're doing, I thought, my God, this is what we need to boost as much as possible. You know, um, I'm going to Korea for a business trip soon. And we learned that Korea made a lot of focus on economy after the war. And perhaps... Uh, it was not very good in terms of um, how democracy suffered, but this is what created Korea that we know today. And Ukraine is not the country that would want to undermine democracy, but we definitely need to make a focus on economic development because this is something that can make us go through these huge challenges that we experience today. And it's not enough just to have people who want something good. We need people who have skills to do something good, who understand um, the technocratic processes, who understand how democracy is being built, who understand how to make anti-corruption reform effective, who understand how to create added value. This is the most important thing. So what I see the NGO uh, Brave Generation is doing is actually to making uh, these new generations of Ukraine as skillful as possible for act actually rebuilding Ukraine and building new prosperous Ukraine. You know, when I see those generations in Ukraine who have not been traumatized by the USSR, I see that there is so much open-mindedness there. There is so much energy for create for creation. There is so much creating power. This just impresses me. This gives me so much joy and hope. And, you know, when I see that brave generations can help them get the Western knowledge, the best standards, to build the network in the West, to learn. I believe that this is the biggest moment of investing in Ukrainian generations who will actually be that Ukraine that we all dream about. So, um, you know, a brave generation uh, needs 
support needs attraction, you know, uh, in terms of public attraction. And I would definitely do a lot to tell the world about it. And I would pay attention if I were you. So, um, yeah, that's actually the reason why I decided to be on the board of the NGO and why I respect those young people who take responsibility and who are not afraid to navigate in this very unstable world today with new challenges, but also with military old challenges and for whom I believe, uh, you know, there is a lot of potential for my country. You know, that's a great note to end on. Thank you so much. And have a great trip to Korea. Thank you a lot, Yuval. Thank you. Have a good one.